Good morning. My name is Lucius Silvanus Metellus, and I ask you to forgive me, I'm not accustomed to public speaking. I bark out a few orders in my day, but I've never spoken to a group like this. It's a little intimidating, but I made some notes for myself. I've been asked to tell you this morning about my personal experience with Jesus of Nazareth. I'm retired now, but I wore my old uniform so you might grasp the significance of the position I held at that time. Let me tell you a little bit about myself first. I, I joined the Roman Legion at 19 years old and rose quickly through the ranks due to my education and diligence. In five years, I was an optionist. And six years later, I was honored to be the Aquilifer, the man that bore the golden eagle standard for my cohort. Three years later, I was made a centurion. That's a pretty quick rise in the Roman army. I served in the 10th Legion Forensis based in Syria. Eventually, I was assigned to a post in Caesarea, which I found delightful. It's a beautiful city on the coast of Roman Judea. It's a Roman city, a very Roman city. In the 19th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, I was sent to serve Governor Pontius Pilatus at the fortress of Antonia, which directly adjoins the great temple in Jerusalem. The temple's magnificent. It matches any of the great buildings in Rome. Almost half of the 10th Legion was quartered there in the fortress of Antonia at any given time. Very strong presence. Jerusalem itself, however, was not like Caesarea. Jerusalem was a hotbed of trouble and a lot of anti-Roman sentiment. But I did my duty faithfully as I saw it at the time. Our commanders made sure we were at full strength as pilgrims started to come into the city for purification, being ready for the Passover. The city was crowded, it was a noisy mess, which was typical during the festival seasons. And that anti-Roman feeling sometimes boiled over, so we were ready. That particular year, on the Sunday before Passover, the man Jesus was welcomed into the city by a huge throng, lining the road, waving palm branches, singing his praises, taking their garments and casting them in the path before him as he came into the city. Of course, we'd all heard of him. He was a famous healer, teacher. The claims about him were many, hardly to believe, believe. They were pretty extreme, but no man was no more well-known at that time in the whole region than Jesus. Now, he'd been to Jerusalem before, so we were naturally uh, curious. We had a security interest in why there was such a fuss about him on this particular Sunday. Our informants told us that he had recently raised a man from the dead who had been in the tomb for four days. That was just up the road in Bethany, just down the road from Jerusalem, the, the gates. Our informants told us that he had done this. Some reported to us that when he entered the city, he wept. But we were concerned about the things that the crowd was calling out about him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem as a king, the son of David, Israel's Messiah. It's true he rode a donkey, not a horse. That was an announcement of peace but they were still calling him king and calling him Messiah. We took note of that. 
He visited the temple every day that week. We were aware that the priest wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd. A traitor, a disciple, told them where Jesus could be found on Thursday night. So with the temple police, the priest went and arrested him. Now, I was with the governor early on Friday morning, about 5. The priests and their temple police brought the man Jesus to Governor Pilatus, and he was delivered bound directly into my hands. He and I would spend the day together. As the priest shouted their accusation, I looked at the man. I was trying to take his measure. He already had a large bruise here on his cheek where obviously he had received a blow. But he was perfectly composed. He was unafraid, listening to the priests and the governor. The priest accused him of misleading the nation, forbidding paying taxes to Caesar. Worst of all, that he claimed to be a king, the Messiah. Governor Pilatus pulled Jesus aside back into the praetorium, and of course he was now my prisoner, so I followed him. He asked Jesus if he was a king. He didn't deny it. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said he came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, and I remember him saying it distinctly, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I was surprised when the governor said, what is truth, and walked away from him. Back outside, he told the priests, I find no guilt in this man. They were outraged. He started hurling every accusation against Jesus that they could think of, anything they thought might stick. Jesus said nothing. They raved all the more. He's disturbing the whole country, starting from Galilee, now in Judea. And when he said that, the governor's shoulders sort of relaxed and his face softened and he got a little smile on his face and he said, is he a Galilean then? Next thing I knew, I was taking Jesus to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, who was in town for the Passover. We weren't there long. The priests came along, too, with their accusations. Herod was not an impressive man. He seemed more interested in Jesus as a source of amusement, a diversion. He asked him all sorts of questions. Jesus never spoke a word to him. He was silent. Herod's men mocked him. He was silent. I began to admire him right there. He accepted all their abuse without rancor or spite or fear. I've seen a lot of men in custody in my years, never anyone like Jesus. It was almost like he had us, but without any arrogance. They put a fine robe on him as kind of a mockery, and I took him back to the governor, who was not pleased to see him. Jesus was an imperial problem again. The governor knew that Jesus was no harm to Rome. And the accusations only came because the priests envied his influence and favor with the people. I'm sure you know we Romans have a saying, let justice be done though the world perish. <coughs> That's one of our guiding stars. It's the standard of Roman honor. That's how good administrators measure themselves. Am I a just man? That's what they think about. But you know the world creeps in. And political pressure often works against that standard. So calculations have to be made. Jesus was a man without worldly power, and the priests had a lot of power, and the governor would have to deal with them for many years to come. So he had a choice, justice or personal safety. He had to think about those things. He worked in his mind 
a method to have both, to be safe and yet be just. So while we were busy over at Herod the Tetrarch's place, the people had asked the governor to fulfill the custom of releasing one prisoner at the feast, which happened every year. So a large crowd had already gathered out before the judgment seat. He could bypass the priests, he thought, and give the crowd a choice. So they, they would choose Jesus, or they would choose a, a notorious murderer and thief and brigand named Barabbas. He was sure they would choose Jesus. But this crowd was not a typical crowd in Jerusalem. It was an organized group of people. There were agitators working in the crowd who served the priests and the elders. So when he gave them their choice, they called for Barabbas. The governor couldn't believe it. He felt cornered. He shouted, what shall I do with the king of the Jews? And one person shouted, crucify him. And then another over there, crucify him. And pretty soon there were calls coming forth from the whole crowd to crucify him, to bring him to death. Justice or personal safety? He had one last idea. He could punish Jesus enough to satisfy those who hated him and yet spare his life. And so with maybe just one finger clinging on to the principle of justice, Jesus could rescue him. I mean, Pilate could rescue Jesus. So he ordered Jesus scourged. It was my responsibility to turn him over to the men who are tasked with those kinds of punishments. Their work is methodical. They are expert torturers. They know their business. To be scourged is to be nearly whipped and beaten to death. Some people don't survive it. It's so brutal that those of you who are Roman citizens know that, that it would be illegal to have you scourged. You couldn't even come to that ever in your life, no matter what you did. So they scourged him. I, I stayed and watched. Usually when those things happen, I step out. But I stayed. In many ways, scourging is rather routine. But this time the soldiers felt a fresh, hellish delight in tormenting someone that many people in the hated Jewish community believed to be a king. So they pushed a crown of thorns deep into his head. They put a purple robe upon him. They put a stick in his hand as a scepter. They mocked him with praise. They knelt before him. They spat on him. They pulled chunks of his beard out. They praised him and then struck him in the face hard. They beat him on the head with the stick that they had given him as a scepter. All of mankind's hatred for authority seemed to be poured out on him. And I saw it. I saw it all. Then we brought him back to the governor. Jesus had trouble walking. Outside in the front, the governor said to the crowd, Behold the man! He was a mess. The governor hoped that would be enough. The priests were not satisfied, demanding his execution. We have a law, they said. And by that law, he ought to die because he, because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, with those words, son of God, the governor shot a glance in my direction and motioned me back into the praetorium. I brought Jesus back there. The governor seemed taken, possessed by these words, son of God. Where are you from? He asked Jesus. Well, I thought that was an odd question. We all knew he was from Nazareth. But I don't think that's what the governor meant. Jesus was silent, not defiant, silent. He did nothing to help himself. 
the governor got angry. Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or I have authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it was given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Well, the priests, those with the greater sin, ended up having the final word on this particular day. The governor went out again, seeking some way to release Jesus still. He knew that Jesus was innocent, and I think he feared that he was much, much more than innocent. They hate him because he made himself out to be the Son of God. What if he is the Son of God? Which God? Well, the Jews only had one, the eternal creator of the universe. So there were more calls for crucifixion. He, he said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, that decided it. Pontius Pilate chose safety and ordered Jesus to be crucified. I pitied him. The governor, I mean. But can any of us be really sure that if we had the choice between survival and justice, that we would choose justice every time? If he let a man claiming to be the Jewish deliverer king go free, he could easily be accused of sedition, and those priests would be happy to make that accusation to Tiberius Caesar. So he surrendered. He ordered me to bring Jesus out to the crowd, and he went to the judgment seat and sat on it. I brought Jesus out. Only the assembled crowd could ever save him now. The governor again pointed to Jesus and said, Behold your king. And a roar came up from the crowd. Crucify him. So the governor called for water. They brought it. He washed his hands in a very dramatic and methodical way and said, See to it yourselves. I am innocent of this man's blood. Someone cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. So he put the heavy beam on Jesus and marched him to Golgotha. I'm sure you've all seen a crucifixion many times. It's out by the gate where you enter the city in a very public place to strike fear into the hearts of criminals and potential rebels. It wasn't a long walk, but Jesus couldn't make it. So we grabbed a pilgrim coming into the city and made him carry the beam for him. That was our right to do that. We came to the site about 9 o'clock. Once there, the men worked quickly, driving large nails through the flesh to fix him on the cross. I've seen this done many times, but never to a man quite like this. I don't know if you've heard, but he was praying while they were driving the nails into him. And he wasn't praying for himself. He was praying for us. Father, forgive them, he said. They know not what they do. I will always remember those words. And how he said them in that moment. Well, we fixed a sign over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The governor insisted that we put that there. And then we waited. Men could live a long time on the cross, sometimes days, but we were under special orders to break the legs of all the crucified before sundown so they would not still hang there on the Sabbath. There's some ancient Jewish law about that. And I know breaking the legs, it sounds awful, but it hastened death. 
Well, the chief priests and the elders, they stuck around too, mocking him. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. One man said, let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down that we may see and believe. I haven't mentioned the two thieves crucified with Jesus. One of them railed at him. If you're the Christ, save us. But the other rebuked that man and said, we are guilty. He is innocent. He asked him, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Then about noon, three hours in, the sky grew incredibly dark, darker than I've ever seen it in, in the daytime. And in that darkness, Jesus cried out something in his native language. I didn't understand it. Somebody said that he was calling on Elijah. Somebody else nearby said he was quoting words from David, from the scriptures. I'll come back to that in a moment, but I didn't understand it at the time. As three o'clock approached, six hours into the crucifixion, Jesus said he was thirsty. So one of my men took a sponge and put it on the end of a stick and dipped it in a bowl of sour wine that the Roman soldiers drink sometimes and held it up to him and he drank from it. And then he said, it is finished in a very clear voice. And then with a loud voice, he called upon his father, father into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he let out his final breath. And at that moment, the ground shook. I mean, violently. People started screaming. I, I managed to stay on my feet. And I just looked at him. I'm standing right before him. I looked at his lifeless body, his battered but peaceful face. People were running all around. And the crowd started to break up after that a little bit. When things settled down, the men came over to break the legs of the prisoners. But his legs were not broken because he was already dead. So a spear thrust up through his chest cavity was done to make sure that he was dead, to show that he was dead. And because of all that I had seen that day, his, his dignity, his acceptance, his forgiveness, and all that nature around me bore witness to, I gave thanks. I gave thanks to the God of Israel. My heart was full and I declared before all, truly, this man was the son of God. I felt that somehow this man answered the question of my existence, of all of our lives. And I didn't understand it all, but I, I knew I wouldn't be the same after that. Well, after this, a member of the council asked for the body of Jesus, a very rich man, a well-known man in the city. And the governor readily assented, of course, because Jesus was innocent and he knew that. His body was cared for and placed in a tomb. And on Saturday, the chief priest requested a Roman guard for the tomb so the disciples could not steal the body. Governor Pilatus agreed and a small watch was set over the tomb. They weren't my men. On Sunday morning, the fortress of Antonia was abuzz with some kind of wild news. The guards said that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body while they were asleep. Asleep? A Roman soldier? They'd be lucky if they're still alive after saying something like that. I didn't speak to them. For some reason, they were quickly reassigned out of our area. <laughs> but if I could speak to them, I would have asked them two questions. You didn't wake up when they rolled that big stone away from the tomb? And I would have asked, 
if you were asleep, how did you know they were his disciples that stole the body? Something about the situation wasn't right. It was hushed up. And the men were, as far as I know, not even punished for sleeping on duty, which would never have happened in the 10th legion that I knew. Anyway, Jesus' disciples soon appeared in the streets proclaiming that his resurrection occurred. He rose from the dead, they said. They saw him, they said. They ate with him. They attended a large meeting with him up in Galilee with hundreds of people there. Peter preached the resurrection at Pentecost and the Christian church, which has now spread to many cities in our empire. Christianity was born. Jesus now had more followers than ever. Now, I must, if you'll permit me, just a couple minutes to tell the end of my personal story. I didn't know what to make of my experience that day. The claim of a resurrected Jesus, it did fascinate me. But soon I was taken up with other duties. There were rebels to suppress in the mountains. I was off with my men. But about seven years after the day I met Jesus, I was reassigned to Caesarea, my beautiful Roman city on the coast. I was very happy to go there. And there I was reacquainted with a fellow centurion named Cornelius. He was always a good man and a good soldier. People thought he was a bit odd because he forsook our gods and he worshipped the God of the Jews in a synagogue. He even paid for the upkeep of the synagogue financially. Well, I mentioned to Cornelius my experience with Jesus and he just lit up. He was overjoyed. He was happy to hear about what happened. Metellus, you were there? You were there? He wanted to know all about it. And he declared to me personally that he was now a follower of this Jesus. Apparently through visions that God had arranged for Peter to preach to him the risen Jesus in his own house. He went to Cornelius' house and preached and the whole family accepted Christ. Peter told Cornelius that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. Now, do you remember Jesus' words from the cross that I didn't understand they were in his own language? Well, I asked Cornelius if he knew about that, if he knew what the meaning of those words was, and he did. He said they were words of David from a psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I asked Cornelius if Jesus doubted God. No, no, he said, and he went over to the place where he had a chest and he opened it and he brought out the scroll and we looked at the psalm together. It's this 22nd psalm, the psalm of David, and we read it together. And as I read, I saw that the psalmist had faith, not doubt. And as we read it, I, I began to weep. The psalm described the day perfectly. It described my day with Jesus in detail. I was there, I told Cornelius as we read. He said that King David, Jesus' ancestor, was a prophet. And the psalm describes exactly where I was that day, but through the eyes of Jesus, it was like... It was like David was on that cross watching the scene before him, hmm. revealing a thousand years before it happened what Jesus would see, the sneering mob calling upon him to save himself, his own body with his bones all out of joint, the thirst, that intense parched dryness that all 
crucified people feel. The pierced hands and feet. It's all there in David's psalm. Even my men gambling for his clothes. Even that. David saw it all. I said to Cornelius, do you think David saw me? He said, perhaps. But God did see you. And Jesus died for you. He was forsaken so that you would not be forsaken. I gave myself to Christ that very day. And I will never stop serving him. That's my story. You've been very patient listening to an old soldier. Thank you. God bless.